A young girl got saved in a powerful revival that was being held at her church. That afternoon, she was full of joy. She was running through the house and singing and just expressing her joy to the Lord. And then her grandfather stopped her and said, you ought to be ashamed singing and dancing on the Lord's day. Well, she was taken aback by her grandfather's response. And so she went out by the barn and she saw the corral fence and she climbed up on the corral fence. While she was there, she looked out and there was an old mule there. And the mule had a droopy face and the mule had bleary eyes. And so she reached out and patted the old mule and said, there, there, old mule, you must have the same kind of religion my father has, my grandfather has. The girl had experienced the joy of knowing the Lord, the joy of being forgiven, the joy of having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul had that same kind of joy. The Apostle Paul had this irrepressible spirit that was just buoyed up by his relationship with the Lord. About this glorious gospel, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, and then also to the Gentiles. Leading up to this, in verse 14, Paul expressed his feelings of obligation to preach the good news, the gospel. In verse 15, he tells us that he is eager to preach the gospel. The object or purpose of the gospel is salvation. The eternal salvation of men and women. It is a salvation whose end result is deliverance from the penalty of sin and establishing a relationship forever with God the Father because of what Christ has done. The most urgent and imperative need of the soul is not earthly significance, but peace, joy, glory, and never-ending future. Only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can provide such salvation. It rescues men from sin's guilt, pollution, slavery, and punishment. The gospel brings men into a state of righteousness, holiness, freedom, and fellowship, and everlasting life. Paul said he was not ashamed. The gospel message is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to read this briefly to you, part of it. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to that which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is another name for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died, and that's affirmed by predicting it in the scriptures, and that he rose again, also predicted in the scriptures. That's the gospel, the good news that we have that offers us hope. Paul says he was not ashamed. When we think of shame, we think of personal shame. We may think of something that we were embarrassed by, something that that brought us shame. Usually it's a personal thing. It's just in our own minds. and It's limited to that. But in Paul's case, it was different. It was not just a personal shame. It was a public shame. It was something that he was out in the streets preaching, and he was being confronted. It was, he was being shamed by the people that heard and rejected the gospel. The shame that he experienced was public and harmful at times, and probably kind of like what they experienced in the medieval, medieval period where they had the stocks. Paul was saying he's not ashamed even of experiencing that kind of shame. Well, we must not be ashamed to share the facts of God's witness concerning Jesus along with their significance to each person. People should be ashamed of something that doesn't work. The gospel, though repulsive to the lost because it exposes sin and wickedness and depravity, it has the power to save. But many have turned to the health and wealth gospel that is not so intimidating and not so politically incorrect. So they remove the offense of the cross of Christ. But without the cross, the message is powerless before God. A powerless gospel will not save anyone. When Jesus' name is used as a curse word and the media sneers at most things Christian, we can become intimidated against even admitting that we are evangelical Christians. While I was a seminary student, I ministered at the projects near the school. One man older than I asked me what I was doing there, and I told him, You know what his response to me was? He said, you're not safe here. There are people who did not receive what I was trying to share. And if you share the gospel, you will experience the same thing. There will be some people who do not receive the gospel, and because of that, they will not receive you. But friends, I want to encourage you those of us who know Christ, those of us who have the gospel, we have the most powerful thing in the world. The gospel has the power to change. The gospel has the power to set us free. The gospel has the power to deliver us from eternal condemnation. 
if we have this kind of good news, we should share it. Not only does it deliver people, men and women, from condemnation, God's salvation continues in power to change lives. Once a person has received Christ, they have that power to deliver them. Morris comments, the gospel is not advice to people suggesting that they lift themselves. It is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but that it is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say, well, when the gospel is preached, it is not simply so many words being uttered. The power of God is at work. When the gospel enters a person's life, it is as if though they were on fire and the very fire of God had come upon him. It is light and warmth in his life. Lloyd-Jones explains, the gospel is the power of God. It does not depend on me and my faithfulness. If it did, we would all be lost. It is God's power to keep, to justify, and to sanctify, and to glorify, to take us right into heaven itself. Nothing can stop it. It is certain. The gospel works and will work until all that God has proposed by its means shall have been accomplished. As I was preparing this message, I came upon a story that I wanted to share with you. It's, it's a bit of an old story. I saw it published, I think, in 1999. But it was about some crew missionaries. Well, used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ. And this family was out in the jungle, jungles in South America. And if you know about Campus Crusade now, crew, you know that they have done a, a major effort in the Jesus film. And the Jesus film is the gospel put into a dramatic story and using the words of, of Christ and using the words of the gospel. And it has been translated into many, many languages. So it's shared around the world. So anyway, this family was traveling from one village to another in South America. And they were sharing uh, this film. And so villagers were getting to see on a big screen the, uh, the presentation of the gospel in dramatic form. And so as they're traveling out of one village into the next village, they're stopped by rebels. You know, those opposed to the, uh, the government, those who are trying to overthrow the government. And so they're trying to get money for arms and things like that. And so they stopped this family. They took their possessions. They took their Jeep. They took the, the projector that they were using to show this film. And uh, it wasn't certain what they were going to do with the family at first, but eventually they did let them go. Weeks went by. The family found their way back to civilization and got back to the headquarters of crew in that area. And um, <clears throat> then they received a message. It was from one of the rebels who had captured them. And they began by apologizing to this family and said, we're sorry for what we did to you. We're sorry for taking your stuff. But I do want to tell you that we did watch the film. The family had insisted. 
the family had insisted, if you're going to take the projector, take the film too. And, and they did. And they watched it. And they said, partially out of boredom, we watched it over and over again. <laughs> and I want to share with you that several of us have become Christians as a result of this. And then they went on to apologize for what they'd done. The power in the gospel is real. It has the power to change hearts. It has the power to deliver us from sin. It has the power to change our lives as it did with Paul. He goes on to say, it is the power of God to everyone who believes. The gospel does not announce that everyone is safe because of what Jesus Christ has done. That is universalism. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel is only effective in those who believe it. Believe what? Believe the good news. What is the good news? It is the news that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, whom God promised to send, and that he has done everything necessary to save us. Now note the word salvation. The key idea in salvation is not what we often think. Rather, it means deliverance. It is a broad idea and it encompasses a lot of ground. It includes our idea of rescue from the lake of fire. But it is more. It has the idea of lifting up and bringing into a safe place. Once we begin to grasp much of what God has done for us, it moves us to want to live for him. This salvation is first to the Jew. I went to Bible college in Hollywood, Florida. It's about a mile outside of Miami. And if you know anything about that area, it is a highly populated area for Jewish people. It is one of the major Jewish centers of population. In fact, I worked in the grocery store and uh, I worked on the, among other things, the kosher foods aisle. So I had many good conversations with Jewish people. And the Bible college, uh, especially the vice president, Mark Cameron, a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, loved the Lord, loved Jewish people. And he had a ministry called Surfside Mission. And it was for the Jewish people, to the Jew first. Well, um, I remember one day after I'd been in Bible college for a while, I was in a doctor's office. I think that I had taken somebody to the doctor's office. They needed a ride. To be honest with you, so long ago, I don't really remember who it was. <clears throat> but I was in the waiting room in the doctor's office for about an hour. And while I was there, and there weren't many people there, but there was a Jewish man, an older man, and I struck up a conversation with him. And... Um, He told me about his wife, and he told me about what medical condition she had, what she's being treated for. And and I listened, and I asked questions, and we got to know each other, you know, develop a little rapport. And then I felt comfortable enough with him, I ventured into something. I asked him if I could share with him, since I was a Bible college student, what the Hebrew uh, scriptures say about Messiah, about Messiah for the Jewish people. And I don't know that he was excited to go there, but we had a rapport, so he said, yeah, sure, go ahead. 
And so I began to share with him from various Old Testament passages. I believe one that I shared with him was from Isaiah chapter 53. It gives many prophecies about Messiah. 700 years before it happened, before he came. Anyway, we had a good conversation, and he was challenged by what I said. He was truly engaged in what we were talking about. And at the end, uh, it was time for me to go. I think I had to take the person back home, and uh, we said our goodbyes. And um, he said, you make my head hurt. (laughs) But he said it with a smile. And what what he was saying was, what I had shared from the Bible, from his Hebrew scriptures challenged him, made him think. And friends, that's what we're to do. We're to share the gospel. Now, it's not our job to make somebody change, but it is our job to share the good news and let people know that God loves them, he cares about them, he sent his son to die for them, and he rose again. That's our job. And it is to the Jew first. Uh, We support several missionaries, and recently we had an elder meeting. And at the elder meeting, we discussed we could support this group or that group or this person. Finally, you know what we settled on? That we would support some missionary who was part of Jews for Jesus. Because to the Jew first. It is a priority. They are key in God's plan. God has given them the Hebrew Scriptures. God has given them the promises and the covenants. And it is through the Jewish people that Messiah came. So doesn't it make sense, since the Messiah, who forgave our sins, came through the Jewish people, we should not neglect them in sharing the gospel. Well, finally, we get to the theme of the book, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The key idea to the whole book concerns the word righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, The ultimate end and objective of the Christian gospel is to answer the question put forth by Job long ago, how shall a man be just with God? How can we be right before God? How can we have a relationship with him? How can we be just with God? That's what it comes down to. The business of the gospel is to make us righteous in the sight of God, to make us acceptable with God, to enable us to stand in the presence of God. Now, you may have comfortable feelings, and you may have had some marvelous religious experience. You may have had great change in your life, and a number of wrong things have been changed. But unless you've got something that enables you to stand before God, And to be righteous in his presence, you may not be a Christian. And you may have never understood the gospel. 
This is the central purpose of the gospel, to make a man right with God, to enable us to stand in the righteous presence of our God. The context of Romans chapter 3 indicates that the gospel, in the gospel, God actively saves with integrity. There's this challenge, how can God who is righteous accept man who is not? That's a challenge. How can a righteous God accept and welcome into heaven, into his very presence, unrighteous people? And the answer is, we don't qualify. Our works never measure up. I think in the Catholic Bible, it says all our works are like menstrual rags before God. My works never measure up. If, if I worked for the rest of my life for God and never, ever sinned ever again, I still have past sins. I can't take care of this obligation before God, this debt I have. Christ had to do that. Christ took that debt. Had to be an innocent person or else he would have his own debts to pay for. Christ was the innocent one, the perfect Lamb of God. John the Baptist says, that takes away the sin of the world. He fit that. He was able to bring us to God and to give us his righteousness. It's a two-part thing. He takes our sin upon him, and he pays for that. And then he gives us his righteousness so that we can stand before God forgiven and declared righteous. It's an amazing thing. This gospel is described as doing it this way. He says it is by faith from first to last. What does that mean? (laughs) It's a God kind of righteousness. One that each of us must have and can obtain no other way. There must be at least a dozen interpretations of the phrase here. The Greek is literally out of faith, into faith. What does that mean? Likely Paul means to say that it is completely by faith. The New Testament agrees, translating it faith from first to last. The Reformation of the 1600s brought us back to the Bible and stressed sola fide. That's Latin for by faith alone. This verse affirms that salvation comes by faith alone. We are not saved by good works, no matter how noble or worthwhile. Remember this. Salvation is God's work for man, not man's work for God. Would you say that with me? Salvation is God's work for man, not man's work for God. Thank you. Now note, it is revealed. It is a revelation from God, this God kind of righteousness, that man unaided could never have conceived, much less attained. In these words, we have Paul's statement in his own way of the theme 
of the epistle. And he says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 here, and it admits to two possible renderings, which Andrew Murray concisely defines this way. He asks us, are we to render the proposition, the righteous by faith shall live, or the righteous shall live by faith? How the righteous will live, namely by faith. In more simple terms, is the emphasis to be placed on faith or to live? To ask this question is, in context, to immediately opt to stress faith. We are to live by faith. And you see this idea carried on and on throughout the book of Romans, especially in chapters 1 through 8. The one who is righteous by faith will live. Righteousness by faith is no new idea, but is found in the scriptures and in the prophets. So here Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. This righteousness is based on faith and leads to ever-increasing walk of faith. When one looks around, it appears as if wicked men are getting away with just about everything, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You know, they live a certain way and it seems like they're never held accountable for what they do. Seems like their unrighteous deeds just don't seem to matter. And then for that matter, we can look up to God and say, you know, God, I've been, I've been uh, coming to church every week and I've been doing these things for you and I don't seem to be blessed as much as so-and-so. Uh, I mean, I'm certain Bill Gates has got it all over me. God, why is that? God doesn't seem to be punishing them. Well, that was the same question in Habakkuk's day. Habakkuk the prophet said, God, why is it that the, the unrighteous prosper? Why does that happen? But the person of faith is to have a quiet confidence in God's ways, knowing he is and will be accepted by God. My friend, that's so much more. I don't care how much money Bill Gates has got when he stands before God, and he doesn't have the righteousness of Christ, all that money won't matter. On the other hand, as you stand before righteous God and the clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you will be so glad to have that. And that comes by faith. In devoting one whole chapter of his commentary to this verse under the heading of Martin Luther's text, Boyce, the writer, concludes as follows. Later in life, Luther was to write many things about the doctrine of justification by faith, which he had learned from Romans 1.17, the verse today. He would call it the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. He called it the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. He said, if the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, perseveres, and defends the church of God 
And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. (laughs) Wow. What a heritage. I have two applications today. Application number one is the good news for the unbeliever, for those not yet in Christ. Salvation is available, and it's based on what Christ did on the cross. It's not what I do to earn salvation. It's all about what Christ did. Salvation is God's work for mankind, not man's work for God. Salvation comes when we place our faith in Christ. No mention of good works, changing our life, baptism, giving, serving God are mentioned. It is by faith alone. By faith from first to last. Now, before I give you the second and final application, I want to ask you to do something, if you would. If you would, if everybody would, bow your heads. Father God, I just pray for everybody here. Lord, there is, uh, there is grace for everyone. There is a place where we all stand equal. It's at the foot of the cross. And Father, I just thank you for that time when I realized that Christ died for me and that it was for me personally and that he offered forgiveness and I embraced that by faith. Lord, you changed my life because of it. You've given me a future in heaven because of it. And Lord, I want everybody here to have that opportunity to have a clear understanding that Jesus died for them, that he paid their sin debt, that it's gone, it's paid, and he offers us forgiveness. My friends, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, nobody looking around, just, I just want to ask you, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, you can do that right now, right where you sit. It's just believing the truth of the gospel, that Christ died, that Christ rose, and he paid for your sin. I pray you do that now. All right. If everybody would look back up our final application. The good news for the believer Sometimes when we stress that salvation is by faith alone, people accuse us of not giving enough significance to good works. And I'm not offering you the idea that all God wants is for you to trust Christ and then just live any way you want. That, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, when I recognized and I admitted that I was a sinner, it wasn't a condition that I had to change and reform all my life to be saved. But it is just natural understanding that God wants for me to to be able to leave a life of sin. And I had plenty of sins, believe me. The good news of the gospel is we're saved not based on our works, but on God's grace. But once we are saved, God has a plan for our lives. In chapters 1 through 4, you see the gospel presented Apart from works, there's not a single exhortation in the whole thing. It's by faith alone. In chapter 5, we get to the pivot. I call it the hinge because it it begins to transfer us from the gospel to the chapters about sanctification. 
And especially in chapter 6, 7, and 8, he gives us teachings on us being changed. Once we are Christians, once we are believers, it leads to what's next. And he begins to teach us why we should live a better life, a holy life, a life dedicated to Christ. Isn't that reasonable? It's not by works in order to be saved, but once we're saved, isn't it a good thing to do good works? Absolutely. The life of sin brought shame, guilt, and other things. Once we're in Christ, God wants to begin to change us right where we are. He meets us where we are. He loves us where we are. But he wants to help us to be better people. And it will be his power that helps us to do that. You know, the term salvation has at least three ideas in the New Testament. One is initial salvation. The second is progressive salvation. And the third, final salvation. As believers, we use the term salvation so frequently, and yet, what does this word actually mean? Most think salvation merely relates to how someone becomes a Christian, and that is appropriate to use that term that way. We probably think this because we are living in the wake of the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers spent most of their time and energies discussing this. But the use of salvation, this term in New Testament times, is much broader. Salvation has actually three phases. The first is justification. Justification is a legal term. Picture a courtroom. You're in the courtroom. You're charged with a crime, and actually you're guilty. But someone paid the penalty. And because someone took the rap, the jury can declare you now not guilty. And actually, the one declaring you not guilty is not a mere human jury. It's God himself. It's concrete, irreversible, trustworthy. That's justification. It happens at an instant in time. There was a time in 1974 when I was not saved, and on a particular day, I can't tell you the exact day, on a particular day, I trusted Christ, and I was saved. It happens at a point in time. Christ's righteousness is put to our account so that someday when we die, we stand before God Almighty. We can stand there not clothed in our own unrighteous deeds, but by the merit of Christ, we stand in his righteousness, able to stand before just and holy God, and that's a beautiful thing. Second, there is practical sanctification. Unlike justification, which is instantaneous, sanctification is a process. It begins the moment you trust Christ. God is at work in your life. I think that's a great thing. God cares about you. He wants to help you right where you are to improve, to be more like him, to be more like Christ in the example he, he gives us. This process begins when we become a believer, and it will go throughout our lives. Now, there will be ups and downs, but it is a process that never stops. We'll never reach ultimate perfection, I don't believe, but we will always be on the path 
where we are trying to serve God, trying to be changed by His power. Sanctification lasts a lifetime. And third, there's glorification. Glorification takes place when we are finally liberated from our present bodies, which still have the capacity for sin now. At the moment of death or the rapture, whichever comes first, we are freed from our potential to sin and ushered into the very presence of God. What a wonderful salvation process that the Lord has us all on. So the next time we hear the word salvation, let's embrace the full dimension and ramifications of the term and consequently glorify God for the great things he has done for us, is doing for us, and someday will do for us when we're in glory with him. Father God, thank you for the good things that you do for us. Father, as we serve communion, we have the opportunity to remember what made this possible. It was the sacrifice of Christ, your son. And Father, all Christians remember what he did and and get to share in that. And I thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Lord, help us to reflect on how we can be better people. Help us to reflect on what Christ did for us and how he paid for our sin. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.